Well, today is St. Patrick's Day. And even though St. Patrick is known as the patron saint of Ireland, did you know he's not even Irish? St. Patrick was British. I just bursted someone's bubble right now, I'm telling you, right? Like he wasn't Irish. There's actually lots of things about St. Patrick's life that are, that are myth and not true. For instance, the color green has no known association to St. Patrick himself. He never used a three-leaf clover to explain the Trinity in his ministry to Ireland. Many other things about his life have grown into myth. They're not true. But the real story, the true story of St. Patrick's better than all the myths anyway. You see, St. Patrick, as he was, uh, or, or as he was named at birth, Maywin Sukkot. Let's all agree St. Patrick's better. Okay. He was born into a Christian family in Northern Britain around 400 AD. And while he was born into a Christian family, by his own account, he said he did not believe in God or the faith of his parents, even calling himself a practical atheist into his teenage years. At age 16, he was captured by slave traders and then taken across the Irish Sea where he would be enslaved in what was then a radically pagan Ireland. It was in his captivity that Patrick turned to this God and religion that he had abandoned as a child. He said, every day through constant prayer, I ended up putting my faith in God the Father as my protector, Jesus Christ through my sufferings, and the Holy Spirit to give me power to endure my captivity. After six years of slavery, Following a, a dream that he had, Patrick managed to escape his captors, traveled 200 miles to the coast, boarded a boat across the sea where he was then reunited with his family in northern Britain. While in Britain, among his Christian family, his faith became firmly rooted in God and in God's word, and he began to study for the ministry. After completing his ministry training, once again prompted by a dream from God one night, Patrick felt that the Lord was, was calling him back to Ireland, not only to minister to those who were enslaved and mistreated with him, but also to the very ones who enslaved him. It was a, a deadly mission to say the least. But as he got to Ireland and began his ministry, Patrick would become one of the very earliest anti-slavery pro-women activists in the Western civilization. He was humbled and moved every day by the hunger and nakedness of those who were in bondage, separated from their families, just like he was in his early years. His care for people was not just a spiritual one, it was a physical one as well, meeting the, the actual needs of people every time that he was, was able. By the end of his 30-year ministry, Slavery had ended in Ireland and has never returned. He started and helped to build the very first ever Christian church in Ireland. And it is believed that Patrick, at the end of his ministry, started over 300 churches and baptized himself 120,000 people in Ireland who had put their faith in Christ through his ministry. His genuine care for people, his spiritual connection to the souls of both the native Irish and the enslaved of Ireland, and the massive impact he had through his ministry laid the groundwork for the gospel, not only to impact Ireland, but to go beyond Ireland as well. 
And you might be thinking, well, what does St. Patrick have to do with today's sermon? Well, I believe in the story of St. Patrick, we, we see three very powerful themes that are also revealed to us in some words that Jesus spoke from the cross. Three very powerful things that not only now will, do we have the chance to experience in our lives, but we have the chance to emulate them as well. If you're new here, by the way, my name is Jeff Manis. I am the lead pastor here. If the person sitting next to you is not wearing green, go ahead and pinch them. As long as you know them. That'd be super weird if you don't know them. Don't pinch them if you don't know them. But uh, whether you're wearing green or not, whether you're here in the auditorium or joining us on video somewhere, I'm thrilled that you are with us today. It's week number three of a seven-week series we are in. It's called Seven, and we are walking through the seven final statements of Jesus from the cross. We don't know if these are the only statements that Jesus said while on the cross, but they are the only ones recorded in the gospel accounts of the New Testament. The gospels are the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We call them the gospels. They are eyewitness accounts to the life, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So far in the series, while Christ was being crucified, we've seen a couple of statements. The first one, many scholars believe he actually said, while the nails were piercing his skin, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Then last week, when the criminal, one of the criminals that was crucified next to Jesus, asked Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Both of those statements as we will see in all of these statements, are incredibly powerful and profound. They are, they are not just words that were said. They have a direct effect on the way we live our lives and what to expect in the next life that we have as well in heaven. If you've missed either of those sermons or any of our sermons at Element, you can get caught up on all of our services online, elementchurch.life. Click on the watch button at the very top and you can get caught up there. The main scripture for today is in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verses 23 through 27. John 19, 23 through 27. John, as I said, is the fourth book in the New Testament. So if you're turning there in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. If you're not going to turn there in the Bible, all the scriptures are on the screens, uh, so you can follow along there. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. We give them away every single week. Uh, just ask for a Bible at guest services or the Next Steps wall. We'll get you a Bible free of charge. At this point in the story of Jesus, in case you don't know, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas arrested by the Jewish religious leaders, convicted of a crime he did not commit by the Roman governor, Pilate. He was beaten and whipped beyond recognition. A crown of thorns was placed upon his brow. Peter had denied Christ at this point as well. And Jesus, along with the help of a man named Simeon, was forced to carry his cross to a place called the Skull or Golgotha. And there at Golgotha, he was nailed to a cross. Two criminals were, were crucified with him, one to his right, one to his left. At this point in the story, the two first statements have already been spoken. Father, forgive them, and today you'll be with me in paradise. That brings us to today's statement found in John 19, 23 through 27. And just so you know, by the way, we are dealing with all, all seven statements in the order that scholars believe they were spoken. 
Now, not all seven statements are given sequentially in any one of the Gospels. In fact, not all seven are given in any of the Gospels. So taking all of them together, it is concluded that this is the order that these were spoken. So John 19, starting in verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they divided his clothes among the four of them. They also took his robe, but it was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said, rather than tearing it apart, let's throw dice for it. This fulfilled the scripture that says, they divided my garments among themselves and threw dice for my clothing. That prophecy was spoken in Psalm 22, verse 18. It's thus fulfilled here at the cross. So that's what they did. Standing near the cross were Jesus' mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Apparently, Mary was a very popular name. When Jesus saw his mother standing there beside the disciple he loved, that's John, by the way, probably the best friend of Jesus while he was on the earth, he said to her, and here's the third of seven statements, dear woman, that was a term of endearment in that day, here is your son. And he said to this disciple, John, here is your mother. And from then on, the disciple took her into his home. It is believed that Mary spent her final days under the care of John, the beloved disciple. Now, I've, I've never preached on these verses before, this statement of Christ. In fact, I don't remember ever hearing a sermon on this statement before. On the surface, this, this statement of Christ, dear woman, here's your son, and, and son, here is your, your mother. On the surface, it seems kind of matter of fact, doesn't it? Like if you compare those words to some of the other phrases from the cross, it feels like just a side note at best. Like take that first statement, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. That is, is huge, has massive implications. The, the example those words are to us in our own forgiveness, the encouragement it is to know that he was speaking those words over us as well. The fact that we can experience the undeserved love and mercy and grace and forgiveness of God through Jesus, that is amazing. Then things like last week, the things we learned about heaven, when Jesus said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, I believe that was incredibly encouraging for us to learn some things about heaven. In the coming weeks, we're dealing with other statements that are just so deep and profound. Next week, we're looking at Jesus praying to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's deep. The, the, the three words, it is finished, they might be the most powerful words ever recorded in scripture that through Jesus, God in the flesh, by his death and resurrection, the payment for our sin is final. The price that we could not pay has now been paid forever. The plan of God accomplished, the mission of God unleashed onto the planet. That is amazing. But now, dear woman, here's your son. Some of you are thinking, all right, preacher boy, how are you gonna apply this one to our lives? Get cracking, all right? Trust me, I thought the same thing. Like weeks ago, when we were planning this and I first took a look at this statement, I, I thought, how in the world does this relate to us? And I thought, maybe I'll give Pastor Andy this sermon to preach. <laughs> but I let him off the hook. 
As soon as I started digging though, it didn't take long, I began to see some very powerful things that Jesus reveals to us through these words on the cross. So a simple big question today that we're gonna hopefully answer is this. What does Jesus reveal from the cross? What's he reveal? And more than just from the cross, from these words to his mother and to his best friend, what does he reveal? Now you might be here today and you don't believe in God for whatever reason, don't call yourself a a follower of Jesus, you might be thinking, well, how will this relate to me? And I'm, first of all, thrilled if that's you and you are, are here. I, I hope that today, whether you believe or not, at the very least, you will understand what we believe about Jesus. And now you will see this incredible heart of Christ for those of us who are still alive and I hope you will see this incredible hope that we have, that in Christ, we are united together as a family of God, okay? Hope that's what you'll see today. So what does Christ reveal from the cross? The first thing is this, he reveals his care for us. He reveals his care for us. I never noticed this before. But the first three statements of Christ from the cross all reveal an enormous, incredible, almost incomprehensible care and concern for other people. Like in all three statements, as Christ was in his greatest moment of need, he was modeling putting other people first in his very life. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. In that statement, while he was being killed, he was focusing on the spiritual need of the soldiers who were killing him, the crowds who were ridiculing him, and all those of us who have ever or will ever sin against them, Father, forgive them. In the second statement, he was focusing on the thief. When, when the thief requested to be remembered in his kingdom, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And now that same quality of love and care and concern is revealed when Jesus said to his mother Mary and to John, his best friend, here is your son and here is your mother. Or in other words, Jesus was telling them both, take care of one another when I'm physically gone from your presence. But I'm leaving but I want you now to care for one another. And here's why this is so important, okay? In this culture, this Jewish culture, Jesus, as the firstborn son of Mary, was responsible for making sure his mother was cared for as a widow. There is no historic evidence of this, but based on the fact that Joseph was not seen in scripture after Jesus was 12 years old, he was never mentioned or seen again, it is believed that Mary was a widow, that Joseph died at some point in the story. So it was Jewish custom that a part of honoring your parents as the 10 commandments dictated was caring for them, especially the mother as a widow. So again, at first glance, it just seems like a minor detail, right? Like, we need to understand, not everything in the Bible is meant for application. Sometimes it's just information. 
Like there are many things in the Bible that are information, not application. It, it's a historical document as well as a spiritual guide. And so we've got to try to figure out what's historical and what's spiritual. And I, I thought that as I looked at the statement, was this just informational? But this care that Jesus seemed to show for those who were killing him, this care he seemed to show for the dying thief, and the care now that he seemed to show for his mother and his best friend reveal a greater truth about his care for us and probably reveal a greater truth about how we should care for those who are around us as well. Pastor Matt Carter said this, about this scenario. A lot of us need to see this and understand the depth of God's love and care for us. As he's shedding his blood for the sins of the world, showing us he can meet the most significant need in the universe, our sin, he's also showing us how he's not too busy, too tired, or too distracted to care for one desperate widow who needs a place to sleep. Isn't that powerful? The cross itself and the words of Jesus from the cross, they reveal to us that we don't just give our sins to God through Christ, we give our cares to God through Christ as well. Like St. Patrick, in the face of death, showed his care for the needs of the slaves and the slave traders in Ireland. So Jesus, in the face of death, shows his care and his concern for us as well. In fact, we are commanded, did you know this? We're commanded to give our cares to God. First Peter five, verse seven says this, give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. We often talk about how nothing's too big for God, right? Did you know that nothing's too small for him either? That not only is there no care so big that God through Christ can't provide, but there's, there's, there's no care so small that Jesus won't take personally. That if it matters to you, it matters to Jesus. So give all your worries and cares to God, for he cares about you. What does Jesus reveal on the cross? He reveals his care for us. Number two is this, he reveals how he connects us. This is where, to me, it just gets so powerful. As stated, Joseph is believed to be dead, so Jesus, as the firstborn son of Mary was charged with her care as a widowed mother. Now, you realize, right? If you don't, you're about to, that Jesus, he had other brothers and sisters as well, right? Half-brothers and sisters. I mean, Mary was his mother, but she was a virgin when God conceived Jesus, the Messiah, in Mary. So Joseph was the adoptive father, but Joseph and Mary, they had other other children. So he had other brothers and sisters as well. So why didn't Jesus leave, leave the, the care of his mother to one of his brothers? That would have made much more cultural sense. <laughs> well, now we, we do know that from John chapter 7, 
Even Jesus' own brothers did not believe he was the Messiah before he rose from the dead. You realize that? His brothers thought he lost his mind. They thought he was a lunatic. Which, you know, to be fair, can you really blame them? (laughs) Because for those of us in the room who have siblings, what would it take for you to believe your sibling was God? (laughs) Right? For some of us, even if they rose from the dead, we would struggle believing they're God, right? But that's what it took. Like they did not believe Jesus was the Messiah until after the resurrection. In fact, some of them may have even thought in this moment he was getting what he deserved. Is that why Jesus didn't give his mother to one of his siblings? Or, or, could Jesus actually be revealing a whole new connection here? A relationship, a spiritual one more powerful and more meaningful than a physical relationship, even a blood relationship. Just like St. Patrick left his home and his family to reconnect with the people of Ireland, so much so that most people believe he's Irish. In the same way Jesus was creating a whole new connection here on the cross. I'm not sure we can overstate the cultural implications that this moment had. The family to the Jewish community was the center of life. There was the temple and then the family unit. So centuries of family dynamics and expectations are at play here. And in a moment, where, where he could have appointed any one of his siblings to care for his mom, any other blood relationship could have cared for Mary, Jesus chose to put her in the care of someone who had a greater connection to him and a greater connection to Mary than even blood. It was a spiritual connection that surpassed the blood connection of his family. Proverbs eighteen twenty four tells us this. There are friends who destroy each other. Some of us have had them. But a real friend sticks closer than a what? A brother. Closer than a brother. Jesus, in this statement, I believe revealed how he connects us those of us who believe in God by faith in Jesus. He connects us in a way that nothing else on the planet can, not even our biology or our blood, that Jesus revealed blood might be thicker than water, but my spirit is thicker than blood. You can put that on Twitter or Facebook if you want to. (laughs) And this is where I think it gets really personal for us. because it leads to the last thing Jesus revealed on the cross. He reveals his care for us. He reveals how he connects us. Number three is this. He reveals his commissioning of us. His commissioning. Commissioning of what? I think with this statement, Jesus commissioned us into a whole new community. Jesus chose every word carefully. So it makes sense that I believe he chose his last words carefully. 
He could have at any moment in life, days before, weeks before, months before, he could have pulled John and Mary aside and said, hey, if anything ever happens to me, dear woman, here's your son. Son, here is your mother. Care for one another. At any other time, he could have made arrangements for the care of his mom. But he chose this moment on the cross, one of seven final statements, not only to care for his mother, but to commission this new family of God to care for one another, to reveal a a new community that he was creating more powerful than the family unit itself. Pastor John Piper says this, Whatever the reason for not putting Mary in the care of her other sons, this new relationship between Mary and John illustrates for us the provision made for us in the body of Christ, the church. This was so challenging to me that here from the cross, we get a glimpse, a picture, if you will, of what the family of God can and should look like what the family of God can and should be. Now, please don't hear that I'm saying neglect your blood family. Like this, this does not mean that blood relationships don't matter. It doesn't mean we shouldn't care for, defend, provide for our own physical families. There's just now something greater than even our own blood relationship for those of us who believe in Jesus. It goes beyond blood. It's connected by the blood of Christ himself and his risen spirit that makes us the family of God. Psalm 68, five and six says this about God. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows, this is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets the prisoners free and gives them joy. This is God, it says. So if that is God, and we believe God now lives in us, could we also say this is God's family? That as Christians, are we a family to those who have none? Are we the providers and protectors and defenders of widows? Are we where the lonely find a place to belong? Are we living out this community that Jesus commissioned us to be from the cross? It's challenging. In John 15, 12 and 13, Jesus is recorded saying this, this is my commandment, love each other. In the same way I have loved you, there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Yes, Jesus was referring to himself and the ultimate sacrifice of laying down his life for our sins, but I believe he was also commissioning those of us who believe to lay down our lives for the family of God. Notice, Jesus did not say there's no greater love than to die for one's friends. He said there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. Yes, at times, it might mean we die for the family of God. 
But right now, that's pretty few and far between for those of us in America. I wonder, I wonder if we often use, well, I'd die for them, as an excuse to let us off the hook from the challenge that it might also be laying down my way of life so I can walk with someone who's living theirs. That's what St. Patrick did. He laid down his life for the care and the connection and the commissioning of the people of Ireland. So am I laying down my life for the care and connection and community of the people at Element Church? Cheyenne, Wyoming. On every seat when you came in, there was a card. I want you to grab that. Wherever you put that, just go ahead and grab that. Father to the fatherless, defender of widows. Could we say this is God's church? Put the lonely in family, set the prisoners free, give them joy. So we, we just came up with some, hey, what's, what's some ways that we could challenge our church to actually live out the care, the, the connection, and the community that I believe Jesus commissioned us from the cross. These aren't the only things you could do, but we just thought, what are some practical things that anybody could do? One, two, all of these. You don't do all of them, obviously. Nobody's required to do anything. But what's some ways that we could actually live out being the family of God? So on the care side, maybe it's provide a meal or some kind of service for a family going through a difficult season. Seek to serve or support someone in your church family who's in need for example, widows, single parents, elderly, people with mental, physical disabilities. Ask someone how you can pray for them and then follow up on that prayer need. We're great, by the way, at somebody telling us a prayer need. We say, oh, I'll pray for you. We walk away, we don't do it. <laughs> follow up on it. The connection side, invite someone who's not currently attending to attend a small group with you, which by the way, if you're not in a group, it's a signal to get in one. We'll have a new season starting up here in a couple of weeks, write a thank you note to someone in the church family who has supported or encouraged you. Schedule a coffee or a lunch with someone in the church family to simply connect with them, no other reason. Community, intentionally include people into your own personal family who may not have a physical family nearby, singles, widows, divorcees, elderly, etc. That one's deep. Like I've been talking with my wife recently, what would it look like to invite someone on our family vacation who doesn't have a family? That's deep. But I think it's what the family of God should do. Invite someone over to your home for dinner or dessert. Open up your home for someone to live with you either for a season or permanently when appropriate. Isn't that what the family of God should be? At the very least, some of those things. And by the way, this is way outside my comfort zone. Like some of y'all don't believe I'm an introvert because I yell at you for 35 minutes up here. <laughs> I am an introvert to the core. Like I, I am happy going home after church and not talking to anybody. I don't even want to talk to my family, right? You should have laughed. That was funnier than you gave me credit for. <laughs> They're in the service, so I can say that. Like I, I'm, I'm very introverted off this platform. 
So, so things like this, inviting somebody on vacation or live with us in our home when that's appropriate, like we're all in different seasons of life. I understand. I'm not saying if you don't do these things, you're not a good you know, part of the family of God. I'm just saying, heading into the new year, even before this, this message was planned, my wife and I, we were challenged by, by the fact that we aren't being great family members to the family of God. It's very easy for us to go back to our own homes and yeah, in times of tragedy, we kind of step up, but what about the times of joy? Are we sharing those? What about our successes? Do we invite others in to live in that with us? It's challenging, but I think it's what Christ established on the cross. That no longer is it just the physical family unit. There's a spiritual family unit tied together by my blood and by my spirit and nothing can tear it apart. So, dear woman, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. And John cared for a woman who was not his mom for the rest of her life. It's challenging. So which... Which one can you do? Do something to help us be the family of God. If you're here today and you have never put your faith in Christ, you've never entered into this family. I talked about it in the message. The price has been paid. The sins have been forgiven. You gotta by faith receive that forgiveness. If you wanna talk to someone about what it means to put your faith in Christ, you can find me in the lobby or a staff member, a pastor, a volunteer. You can stop by the purple tent in the back when we're done and talk to somebody back there. Well, we want to talk to you about what it means to put your faith in Christ. Let me pray for you and then remain seated. Got a few closing remarks. God, you're so good. Lord, I thank you that in, in these words that could appear meaningless, there is great meaning. That your, your care for us is so evident the connection that you give us by your spirit is so strong. And Lord, the community we're called to live in is so challenging. So Lord, help us be a church that lives out the community that you have commissioned us to live. Lord, for myself, for my family, Lord, help us be better at this. Lord, I thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for your love and care for us. We give you praise in Jesus' name, amen. If you are new here, please stop by the living room on the way out. We'd like to meet you there. If you need prayer for anything going on in your life, uh, you can stop by the purple tent all the way in the back of the auditorium, and uh, we'll pray for whatever need you have going on. We'll stay as long as necessary. Next week, looking at my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I love being a part of this family. I love you guys. Have an awesome week. You're dismissed.